Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Wednesday, June the 15th, 2022. It is currently 8.11 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. And I know it's Wednesday night, so some of you may have been prepared for me to be live at 7 p.m. Well, things didn't quite work out the way I intended, um, and we didn't have in-person services tonight. So kind of everything got a little bit messed up. But even though it's 8, 11, 8, 12 p.m. now, I wanted to at least take a little bit of time and try to once again turn our attention to the Bible study exercise that we're working on, which is the study of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We've been working on it now for a while. We're, we really kind of have, there's kind of two different, I mean, it's all part of the same study, but there's really kind of two different tracks going on. Uh, the the messages that are occurring at Victory Baptist Church behind the pulpit with people present, those studies are really me taking one of the textbooks that I used in a seminary that I attended and just kind of working through its very academic approach to the subject of the Holy Spirit, All right? So we were working on that. We've, we've you know, I don't know... It's a very academic approach, so it may not be the most exciting, but I still think it's very important to try to just look at all of these specific issues in regards to the Holy Spirit. So we're working on that. Now, that's one track. The other track is, well, the homework I've given you to do a topical method of Bible study, and hopefully everyone is working on that. And then we're kind of utilizing the curriculum, and we'll just be, we'll be doing a, a number of different things. So we'll have kind of like a more, how can we say it, a less, I guess one that's not as specific, one that's kind of a little bit more free form in our discussion of the Holy Spirit, and the other one is very much like, hey, we're going to follow a specific path looking at a specific idea. Hopefully, the two approaches will be beneficial. One is very academic. The one, the other one is more, hey, you look this up, and what about this, and just more discussion, or maybe one is more lecture-driven very specific, like you're sitting in a classroom, and the other one is more conversational and discussion-driven. Hopefully, those two approaches will make this extremely beneficial. We've also had, I think, more people request the curriculum for our study of the Holy Spirit than any other than any other study we've done. We've done lots of studies where nobody wanted access to the curriculum. But when we got to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, for some reason, the, in, the, the interest increased dramatically. I mean, far, far more requests than ever before. And, I, and I, I, I'm still trying to figure out what it is. I wonder, I wonder if there's something that people don't understand about the Holy Spirit or they've just heard so much teaching and everyone is so like, this is what you have to believe about the Holy Spirit, that maybe... They're still not convinced, and this demonstrates that they're still they're still asking questions. Like they may not be asking me questions, but they still have questions, and they're still looking into it. I, I would not think if you were to ask me, I would not have predicted. Well, the 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 study on the Holy Spirit that's going to be the one that's going to get the most most requests for curriculum, and that's going to generate you know 
I, I don't know if it has generated more downloads or more streams. I would have to try to figure that out by looking at all the statistics. But there just seems to be more interest in it. And it's just kind of, I don't think I would have predicted that. Because in, in my mind, a lot of people just like, this is what you believe about the Holy Spirit. And it's just kind of like, there it is. And maybe people aren't happy with just the simplistic answers. Because I don't, honestly, I don't think there's any simplistic answers when studying the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. To me, no matter how much you look into it, no matter how many books you read, how many sermons you listen to, even though they all sound so dogmatic, so certain, so clear, like there shouldn't even be a question. I think the, the more you look into it, the more confusing it gets and the more irritating it gets, or at least to me. I know everyone else thinks it's just so simple. About the only thing I know about the Holy Spirit that I can be 100% dogmatic of is the third person of the Trinity. One God, three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I know, I can say I understand that the Holy Spirit is a person, and not just some, you know, mindless force, and that the uh, I understand the Holy Spirit, the deity of the Holy Spirit, God, that the Holy Spirit is God, one God, three distinct persons, that it's a, the third person of the Trinity. Like, there's certain things like that I can be dog, dogmatic, those things that are very theological. But how the Holy Spirit works and all of the different claims about what the Holy Spirit is doing and, and how much power it gives us, and it supposedly leads us into all truth, all of these claims that Christians constantly make, to me... I have major issues with because you just look around and you're like, there's just, it just makes no sense. I'm going to, I'm going to mention it. The one that everyone always goes to, the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. The Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. 2000 years of church history. If the Holy Spirit's leading us into all truth, something went way wrong because nobody agrees on anything. So then you have to believe he's only leading you into truth and everyone else is wrong. But it's just it's just crazy. I think I, I can't remember I had a correspondence with someone one time who claimed that well, it was the Holy Spirit who led me to understand infant baptism. I'm like, well, it was the same Holy Spirit who led me to reject infant baptism and believe in believers' baptism. So which one of us was led by the Holy Spirit? <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? If he's leading us both in the truth, how did we end up with completely different understandings? Right? Some people will say it was the Holy Spirit that led them to accept the Roman Catholic Church. And you'd be like, no, that's not true. The Holy Spirit's what led me to believe the, Holy, the Catholic Church was apostate. It's just everyone claims the Holy Spirit is leading them. Even the idea that he's, he, he illuminates. The, the way I can understand the Bible is because the Holy Spirit illuminates. Well, he illuminated you and you came up with a different interpretation than me. So then did the illumination not work? I just, I just think there's so many claims. And then all of the claims constantly about power, 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 power. The Holy Spirit indwells me. I have the Spirit of God. He's God, so he's omnipotent. I have the, all, the power of the eternal, all-powerful God dwelling inside of me. Um, and and, and, uh, and um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check something here. Someone just posted something in the chat, and then it immediately disappeared. I'm going to go here. We've been having some issues with the chat. Um, I'm going to open this up. Okay. Yeah. I don't know what happened. It completely disappeared, but all right. It, it may show back up in a minute, but yeah, it, it's just, it's just absolutely, 
It's just crazy that we that, that that it's always sold that you have the Holy Spirit, you have power, you have power, you have power, you have power. But then we always go, well, you have power, but you don't have power to be perfect. Well, then that means there's a limit to the power that I have. And they say, well, you have the power to do this. And it's like, well, I don't know. Look at the 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 world of Christianity. There is sin and broken homes and this. And then so then you start claiming once again, you have a power that other people don't have a power. Therefore, they're not saved. And it just becomes this never-ending frustration. So what we're going to do tonight, there was a part of me that wanted to drive to the church or just go to the church and turn on the microphone there and just use the book. But I, I it's hard enough teaching that way when there's people present. Um, and it's almost impossible to teach that way in an empty room. Uh, I'm going to read what someone just uh, said in the chat. They said, and if you both come up with different things for baptism, the only logical conclusion would be that someone doesn't have the Holy Spirit uh, or, or therefore, or, or, or then, or therefore unregu- uh, unregulated. And it's, it's just, it just, uh, it just becomes a mess. Either you have to claim they don't have the Spirit, they claim you don't have the Spirit, and it, it's just, it's just control or unregenerate. Okay, good. Okay, not unregulated. Okay, I was trying to understand the regulated part, but okay, unregenerate makes perfect sense. Okay, yes, you'd have to either claim you're not saved and they would claim that you, but then the only thing is they would claim you're not saved. So we say you're not saved. They would say you're not saved. So in a sense, there is no way to regulate it because everyone claims, well, the Holy Spirit gave me the truth. The Holy Spirit gave me the interpretation. That's why it scares me to death. When you ask Christians, I remember one time asking people early on in my ministry at at the church, so what do you do if you don't understand a passage of scripture? And they said, well, I pray and and trust that the Holy Spirit will will give me the interpretation. And I'm like, what in the name of bubblegum are you talking about? It doesn't work that way because because the minute you claim that's the way it works, the minute you come up with interpretation, it would have to be infallible because it came from God. It's just the whole, the whole subject just drives me absolutely crazy. And that's why I gave everyone the topical method because I wanted everyone just to look at everything. I want everyone to just do all of the work to see every verse and then try to group all of the verses and, and, you know, together. And then let's try to process everything that you see. I'm hoping people are working on that. I know it's a lot, but I, whatever you have to do, finish that because at least it'll keep you from being tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. So, so I, I wanted to get the book and do it kind of the academic way, but what we're going to do is we're going to return to the curriculum tonight. That's what we're going to do. And let me just remind you, based off the curriculum, this is what we've looked We've talked about the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has a role in the in people being convicted of sin, convicted in their need for Christ. There's just a convicting work of the Holy Spirit, and we read some scriptures that seem to indicate this in the Gospel of John. And so what I did is I broke the convicting work of the Holy Spirit really into three time periods, I guess. The, the period of before salvation. So I believe the, the work, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is present before salvation in a general or common way, right? Because it talks about convicting the world. I think that there's just the, the Spirit of God is present and there's a conviction 
inside people, whether they understand it or not, part because of the work of the Spirit, and second, because the law of God written on their heart. So this is just general or common. This is a part of, uh, we could call it the general call. We could call this common grace. There's there's a little bit of this here, all right? Okay, good. That uh, some some someone said it. Un- they it made sense. I, I'm hoping it makes sense. I don't think I, I typically hear it taught this way. But when I start thinking of soteriology, especially from a reformed perspective, we talk constantly about the general call versus the effectual call, common grace versus say saving grace or electing grace. So I think that there's a co- the convicting of work of the Spirit. There is a it's before salvation. There's a general and common convicting work. Then in salvation, there is an effectual, I guess we could call it an effectual or saving conviction in salvation. And then there is one after salvation. And the one after, I, you know, I, I that, that's really hard for me to know exactly how that works. I will just say I believe the Holy Spirit is because he indwells in us. There is a convicting work. I, I cannot clearly define it. I cannot clearly explain it because you you'll have Christians who literally will tell you, "Well, the spirit of the spirit of God has not convicted me of that." And you're like, "Well, but, but but it's right here in the Bible. It's right here in the Bible." So so how does that work? And then, and then of course some will say, "Well, if they don't feel convicted, then they're not saved." And it's like that. That's always we always we we always run. It, it just seems weird that Christians always want to run to who can I throw out of the kingdom of God? Who can I announce isn't saved? And at, at some point, we just have to stop doing that. There is a convicting work of the Holy Spirit inside after salvation. How that works, I'm not, I'm, I mean, look, you can speculate all day. The Holy Spirit indwells us, and therefore, there is a convicting work in it that should be far different than the convicting work before salvation, and even far different than the convicting work in salvation. The convicting work in salvation is to show us our sin and our need for a Savior. This is a convicting work in, in just our daily Christian life. Right? They're, they're similar, but I think it's somewhat different. Then we talked about, to the one that just drives me crazy, we talked about, we'll call it the revealing work of the Spirit. Now, some people will call this giving revelation. Some will say it's not revelation, it's illumination, but then it's always this weird. So what is illumination? Well, it just, it illuminates to you the scripture. So it illuminates me and I now understand the scriptures. Yes. I'm like, well, if that's true, then then why doesn't everyone come to the same conclusion? Nobody ever has any good answers about this, but here's what I think. I think the, I'm going to argue the leading people into all truth, the revealing truth, the even eliminating truth, I, uh, illuminating truth, not eliminating truth, the illuminating of truth, I think all of that was an apostolic work of the Spirit. Now, I know immediately people are going to disagree, but look, this would be one that would be easily proven. It would be easily proven. Just go to any seminary, just hand anyone a test, give them a scripture and say, there you go. You don't need to study. You don't need to do anything. You've got the Holy Spirit. He's going to lead you into all truth. He's going to illuminate truth. He's going to reveal truth, but it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You have to study and study and study and study. You got to figure out Greek and Hebrew and context and syntax and historical background and the the difference between observation 
observation versus interpretation versus application. And even then, after all of that work, you, you can have people who've studied hermeneutics, every Bible study method, still there will be disagreement. You can't even get Christians to agree on how to outline the book of Jude for crying out loud, which I've been struggling with trying to get people to, to outline the book of Jude differently. Most people disagree with me. Well, again, if he's leading us into truth or, or illuminating us, shouldn't we all be able to figure that out? I mean, we, we heard that horrible sermon where the pastor talked about lining up homosexuals and shooting them in the back of the head, or at least having the government do so. And he based some of his idea on a complete misunderstanding of Romans 1 and a horrible reading of the book of Jude. Well, so some will say, well, he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And then he would claim that you don't have the Holy Spirit. So that's just never ending claiming everyone doesn't have the Holy Spirit never makes any sense. I believe the revealing work is an apostolic work that in the, in the scriptures where it's spoken of, it is clearly spoken to the disciples, the apostles, who are going to be instrumental in the formation of the New Testament, where they would need to be led into all truth, where their minds would need to be illuminated so they can understand what to write and all, and all, all the whole process of inspiration, which clearly the Holy Spirit was, in, uh, was involved in. I mean, because all scripture is given by inspiration of God and the spirit moved upon them. So I would say this, I would say the revealing work, you could say this, the revealing work, the illuminating work is, was limited to the process, to the, uh, to inspiration. It was an apostolic work and the inspiring and the, the inspiration of scripture for the apostolic era. I, 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 that, or you could even go back that the revealing work of the Holy Spirit was a, a work dealing with the of inspiration of Scripture, and that process was happening in the Old Testament and in the Old Testament era and the in the Apostolic New Testament era. And after the Bible was complete, that revealing, illuminating work ceased. Now, I know everyone's going to disagree with me. He's like, you say whatever you want. The Holy Spirit illuminates my mind and helps me understand scripture. Okay, well, great. Then your interpretation is infallible. Write a commentary. We'll burn all the others and we'll have one infallible commentary. But I guarantee you, I will look at your commentary, supposedly written because you were illuminated by the Holy Spirit, and I will find 500 that disagree with you. Or I may even realize that you don't even, that yours is absolutely just provable incorrect by just basic hermeneutical rules. I've heard so many pre preachers say about the Holy Spirit illuminating them to a, a, understanding a passage of scripture, and it will be completely wrong. I mean, it'll be wrong by just any basic rules of reading comprehension. So I'm going to say that the revealing work of the Holy Spirit, the revealing and illuminating work of the Holy Spirit was the work of inspiration in both the Old Testament era and I'm going to say the apostolic era. And at the, the completion of the canon, the revealing and illuminating work ended. That's, that's what I'm going to say. All right. Now, that brings us to, to, to tonight. And I know I've already spent 19 minutes, but that's okay. That brings us to tonight. If you look at the curriculum, you will notice that in... Let me see. I'm going to go back to, to look at this. I'm going to go back. Give me one second. If you go to unit one, session two, unit one, session two, 
we now look at the work of the Holy Spirit in the new birth. The work of the Holy Spirit in the new birth. Unit 1, Session 2 is called Born Again by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings us into a new life as we place our trust in Jesus. Now, they give us for Scripture, starting in John chapter 3. They want us to read John 3, 1 through 8, and then verses 14 through 17. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 and 14 through 17. All right. I don't know how I don't know how far we're going to get into this, but at least when I wanted to take some time this evening to at least introduce this because, well, not everything worked out as planned tonight. But I wanted to make sure I didn't just again, I think it's very important with the Bible study exercises not to go too many days without talking about it because out of sight, out of mind, people forget about it and move on. So here we go. Let's at least look at the scriptures. All right. John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art thou that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, immediately, Jesus talks about being born again. Nicodemus understands being born again in the most literal, physical sense that you can imagine. Wait, how can a man enter into, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? Nicodemus does not have any understanding of what this means. He sees this terminology in the most physical way possible. So Jesus says in verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the new birth. Now, oh, there's things I want to immediately run to. We're just going to, we're going to walk through the curriculum. I don't want to, I want to skip, but I want to at least see where how the curriculum handles this. And then we'll, because I want you to hear both perspectives. I want to hear whatever the curriculum has to say. And then clearly, oh, we have a lot to do in this passage of scripture, right? So let's open up the curriculum. I'm waiting for it. All right, now what's interesting, I always like looking at the artwork in the curriculum and always trying to interpret its meaning. So session two is born again by the spirit. And then it shows someone sitting like in a recliner, their leg is propped up and it has a cast. So their foot, their, their foot or leg ha- has been broken and they, they have a cast on it. It's kind of weird. You're like, well, so what is it? What, what? I don't know what that's supposed to mean. I, I, I don't know. So, so they underneath that, they say, when you, when you have made big plans or when have you made big plans? only to have them unexpectedly changed. So it's the idea that, hey, sometimes in life, 
things change dramatically. Like you, you can walk around on both legs and then boom, you break one. And now you're sitting in a recliner with your leg propped up with a cast on it. Is, is that, is that the concept here? Maybe, right? The point, the Holy Spirit brings us into a new life as we place our trust in Jesus. Now we could get we we could get into a discussion about the order of salvation. I I think they're going to take one you know the ordus salutis as we've talked about. We've talked about the order of salvation before. I, I I see some possible issues with where they're going here, but we we won't get into that right now because we could get really sidetracked. Now the passage John three verses one through eight. I think I stopped I stopped at verse seven. Um, I did not read verse eight. We'll we'll save verse eight because I think there's some things. I think eight almost takes us in a different direction, and I want to focus on verses kind of one through seven, and you'll see why in a minute. All right. Then they want us to look at verses fourteen through seventeen, which I'm not going to read this evening. I'm not going to read that at all right now. All right. They say the so then they have the Bible meets life. This is what the curriculum says. An older man was talking with a graduating high school senior. He inquired, so what will you do now? The young man said he planned to attend college and major in business. The old man asked, and then what? The young man said he he wanted to start his own business, marry and have a family. The old man repeated, and then what? The young man said he hoped to travel, put his kids through college and continue to have success in business. All great goals, said the old man, and then what? The young man supposed he would grow old and retired. The old man asked again, and then what? The young man said, I suppose I will die. And, th- and then what? The young, the young man simply said, I don't know. Most of us get so caught up in our plans for our lives that we fail to realize how quickly this life ends. We live for today with little thought for eternity. Jesus spoke about the work of the Holy Spirit that makes it possible for us to spend an eternity with God in heaven, right? They quote John 3, 1 through 3, and they give us, and I'm not going to go through all of this because of time. You can read it. They talk about who the Pharisees were. They talk a little bit about Nicodemus, that he he uh, he called uh, Jesus. Uh, that Nicodemus made three powerful statements about Jesus. He called Jesus Rabbi. He called Jesus a teacher from God, and he acknowledged that God was with him. All right. Uh, then uh, they jump down to verse four through eight. This is where I want to focus. All right, John three four through eight. So the emphasis here. We've talked about the work of the Spirit in conviction the work of the Spirit in revealing, now the work of the Spirit in being born again. And verses 4 through 8 reads like this. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Verily I say unto you, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Unless he is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That verse, now now, right here, this verse, I love the fact that this verse is being given to us in the study of the Holy Spirit for this very reason. 
Everyone who walks around and claims the Holy Spirit illuminates, the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth, then explain that why in 2,000 years of church history, there is no agreement on this verse. There is none. Some will say that's baptism. That's the work of the Holy Spirit and baptism. That is how you're born again. Others go, no, no, no. The water there refers to natural birth. You have to be born the first time naturally before you can be born a second time spiritually. A third group will say, no, 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 no. The water there represents the word of God. So you have to be born of God's word and of God's spirit or you will not be saved. So we have baptism and the work of the Holy Spirit. We have natural birth and then the work of the Holy Spirit, and then we have the Word of God and the Word and the, and the work of the Spirit. Three completely different views that are very much present in church history. All people claiming that the Holy Spirit leads them into all truth. That's why we have to restrict the revealing work and the illuminating work to the pro, to the to the doctrine of inspiration. The Scriptures were inspired through the revealing work and illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. That, that, that's it. But let's see what the curriculum does here. All right? They have keywords. Born of water. Now, they claim this is not a reference to water baptism, but rather to the Old Testament, where water symbolized life, renewal, cleansing, salvation, and the Spirit. Now, those are massive claims. First, this is not a reference to water baptism. Now, you could, you could make maybe a, I don't, okay, you could make a, you could try to make an argument for it. You can make an argument against it. They just make a dogmatic assertion. I think one thing is, this does this not happen pretty early on into the ministry of Jesus? It's not like the people at that time would have had any clue of, of really, would they have had an understanding of baptism in any meaningful way? Like, hey, you're going to have to be born of water. I mean, baptism. Why didn't he just use the word baptism, right? Like, if this is baptism, it just seems like a really confusing way to convey that idea. Hey, this idea of baptism, you know, John the Baptist was baptizing some people, right? Like, like they're... Jesus doesn't baptize anyone, right? His disciples do, but does Jesus baptize anyone? Now, if, if, if no one can be saved unless, unless they are baptized and have the Spirit, you think Jesus would have been baptizing. And why does Paul say that he wasn't sent to baptize? There's, there's some major issues there. And how in the world could Jesus tell the person on the cross that he was, he was going to be with him in paradise? And some say, well, baptism is, is required, but if you can't be baptized, then you don't have to be somehow. Well, no, if it's either required or not required. If this verse is saying, verily, verily, I say to you, except a man be born of water, baptism, uh, and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God, then there's no exceptions, not, not an exception clause. I, I always hate that. Sometimes those who believe in a baptismal regeneration or baptism is required for salvation, they always want to make an exception. No, 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 no. Like if, if you say that you believe in Jesus and that you intend to get baptized, but you die before, now you're still good to go. Where did you, where did you come up with that? This says, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, 
he cannot enter into the kingdom of God, stressing it as it's an impossibility. So uh, I I don't know how you make, if you're going to go with a very strict baptismal regeneration concept that one must be baptized in order to be saved, you can make no exceptions. There are no exceptions. If the person wasn't baptized, they did not enter the kingdom of God. For you to just come along and impose an exception clause to the doctrine simply because you don't like like it, then then what's the point of even looking to the... Just make up your own doctrine, because this verse says it has to happen. Now, they say it's not water baptism. I just tried to give you some reasons why I don't believe it's water baptism. But they say it's rather... It's, it's a reference to the Old Testament, where water... Now, this makes me concerned. Water symbolized life. Now, how do you just make... If you listen to our last study that we did at the church, we went through all these supposed symbols and emblems of the Holy Spirit, right? Because I tell I, the reason I wanted to do that, well, for this reason right here. Everyone claims this is a symbol. This is an emblem of, this, of all kinds of things. And sometimes when you start actually looking into it, you're like, based off what? So where would you turn? So I'm, I'm going to give this almost like a just kind of a, just a little mini homework. It, it, where would you turn to say that the that water uh, symbolized the Holy Spirit and that water symbolized life, renewal, cleansing, and salvation? I think we can see cleansing, salvation. Maybe the Spirit d- does it. Does it? Or I, I mean, I, I want you to just really think about that because they're making dogmatic assertions here. All right. Uh, okay. Uh, so, some. Uh, okay. So, someone just said someone had something. I'm not going to go to it now. They're, they're saying I just sidetracked. Okay, that's okay. That's okay. All right. So they make these claims. I'm going to say baptism. No way, unless you're going to just make it essential, and there are no exceptions under any way, under in any way, shape, or form. No, no, not. Now, uh, yes, if so, if you're in a church that rejects sola scriptura, you can make it whatever you want to be. But based off scripture, then there's no way I could do this. All right. So they go on to say this. Nicodemus asked the question all of us would probably ask: How do I do that? A person is only born in this world once. If Nicodemus took Jesus literally, the statement would have seemed nonsensical. The question he asked about re-entering his mother's womb would support his total misunderstanding. Jesus answered him solemnly, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, uh, and told Nicodemus that he must be born of water and of the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. The term water has been understood in at least three different ways by biblical scholars. Number one, Some believe that Jesus was referring to the water of baptism. That would align the ministry of Jesus with the ministry of John the Baptist, calling on people uh, to to baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, Mark 1.4. Others have suggested that the water was a symbol of the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. If this is true, then both words are referring to the same thing. Okay, I didn't even mention that one a minute ago, so there's another possibility. That one makes no sense to me. You have to be born of the Spirit, and of the Spirit. That makes no sense. Number three, others believe that Jesus was referring to the watery fluid of physical birth. This would parallel his statement in John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
The third view seems the best way to understand Jesus' statement. So they go with that it just represents that what Jesus is saying, you must be born physically, right? Then you, then you, let me read it again. I say unto you, except a man be born of water, except a man be born physically and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So you have to be born physically and of the spirit, or you cannot enter the kingdom of God. It just seems weird that you have to be born physically. You're already talking to someone who has been born physically. Hey, hey, everyone, are you born physically? You have to be like, why are you telling people you have to be born physically? I mean, it just seems like it, that's a given. Anyone you're talking to has been born physically, right? You have to be born physically. Oh, I'm sorry. I, okay, I'm out of luck. No, that, that just seems odd to me, right? I, I have preferred and my, that connecting it with the word of God. I believe there's two things required for salvation. The word of God, no, people are saved through the preaching of God's word. It is, the, it is through the preaching of God's word that people are saved. I, I don't believe people are saved apart from the preaching of God's word. It requires the word of God and it requires the spirit of God. The word of God you, is a general call, right? The, it's, it's common grace, it's general call that goes out to everyone. But for the word of God to be made effectual and bring people to salvation requires the work of the spirit to make it make that preaching effectual. I can preach the word of God to 10 people. One may be saved because it requires the spirit of God to make that preaching effectual, bring the conviction, bring them to an bring them to new life. I, I think that's I, I think I think it has to be the word of God. It has to be. And just to be fair, so that no one thinks that I'm just crazy. I know everyone listening already knows this, so I don't want to seem like I'm just repeating something, but I think it's very important to, to read this. Um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. The word is literally referenced as washing of water. The word of God is the water that washes, it cleanses, and you need the word of God and you need the spirit of God. Now, I know it would make far more sense for Jesus to have said, you need to be born of the word and of the spirit. I wish he wouldn't have used the term water because, well, it leads to nothing but chaos. All right. So let me go through these again, just so that we, we have a clear idea here. The idea that we are born of water, referencing uh, baptism, make if you say that, then you have to make baptism a requirement, and there are no exceptions. If a person wasn't baptized, they die and go to hell. End of story. You can't make an exception. 
because Jesus literally, I mean, I don't know how much, how clear he can be. Look, if we, if we can, if we can remove what is clearly a requirement and we can make an exception then we can just do that with everything. And well, but it's funny. We allow exceptions for some things and not for other things. Okay. It's really weird how Christians do this, but let me read it to you again. Verily, verily, I say unto to thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That doesn't sound like there's an exception. So if you're going to make it baptism, if you're going to make it baptism, then if someone is not baptized, they go to hell. There is no exception. And most people who believe in some form of baptism or regeneration always makes an exception. Always makes an exception. I don't know why, but they always do. So I think there's problem number one. Problem number two, Jesus didn't baptize people. So why is he presenting the gospel to people if he's not baptizing them? Three, Paul says he wasn't sent to baptize. That makes no sense. How in the world is the, the thief on the cross can be said, you're going to be with me today in paradise? He wasn't baptized. And not only that, John 3 is early on in Jesus' ministry. Do they Have they even really established any really concept of baptism in any meaningful way other than that of John? It, it just, it, to me, it just, there's too many problems with the baptism one. The second that this, the word water here simply means spirit, that makes no sense because verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of spirit and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That just doesn't make any sense. That just doesn't make any sense. It That, the third possibility that it just refers to physical birth. That one, I, I, I don't have a major problem with that one because it does fit what he says in the next verse. So let me read it this way. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be physically born um, and born of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, again, it just seems confusing to me that you're talking to someone who's born and say you have to be born physically before you can be born of the spirit. It just seems kind of odd, like, hey, that's a given. But the next verse, I will say the strength of that view is the next verse. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So if I, if you want to say it's you have to be born physically, then you're born of the spirit. Okay, that, that at least makes a little bit of sense. It makes some sense. It makes more sense than spirit, spirit. It makes more sense than uh, water, water baptism. So it's either the word of God or it's physical birth. All right. Now, none of that answers exactly what the spirit's role is in the new birth. It doesn't really explain that. Now, here we go. Being born again is the work of the Holy Spirit. When one is born by the Spirit, he becomes a child of God. The individual is immediately accepted into God's family, not because he earned his way into the family, but because he was spiritually born into it. As a person grows in the Spirit, the character of Christ and the fruit of the Spirit becomes more evident. The work of the Holy Spirit to bring about the new birth is not easy to measure or explain. Amen. It is how to measure it, how to explain it. Jesus used the wind to illustrate what being born of the Spirit is like. We can feel the wind blowing against our face and see it moving the leaves on the trees, 
The work of the Spirit in a person's life is not something we can necessarily see, but it is no less real. The Spirit moves in us to draw us to God, to cause us to become a new creature. Now, again, the new creature concept is positional, not practical, okay? People often compare a newborn infant with an adult family member. Oh, look, she has grandma's nose. He, he looks just like his dad. I think people who, I think people see what they want to see. When I see a newborn child, uh, I think he looks like Yoda from Star Wars, <laughs> sort of squat and wrinkly. But as the child grows, he looks more and more like his parents and physical family traits become apparent. I compare that with the life of a newborn believer. His life may not immediately look like the father. Perhaps he has yet to develop the father's characteristics. But as he grows in the spirit, his life reveals more and more of the spiritual DNA of of his father, God. The call to be born of the spirit is the same for us. Being, Being good does not save us. Going to church does not cause us to to receive a welcome from heaven. We must be born of the Spirit. Now, they acknowledge it's hard to explain it. It's hard to measure it. It's hard. There's, There's some mysterious thing about it. But the Spirit has to be involved. The Spirit has to be involved. And I think... I think the con- I think really the idea is the spirit has to give us life has to give us spiritual life so that we can respond in faith so that we can uh, acknowledge our sin. No, we're spiritually dead. The spirit's role in salvation is to grant me spiritual life so that I can believe. Look, I can't believe on my own. The spirit of God has to give me life, has to give me repentance has to help me see my sin and want to turn to Christ because I know I'm a sinner. I think the, the spiritual is to grant us life. It gives us, we're dead spiritually. So now we need spiritual life and he grants spiritual life and God has to give us faith, has to give us repentance. No one can on their own repent or believe. The spirit has to give that. Now, some people kind of look at it like, okay, you believe, then you get the Spirit. I believe the Spirit has to come upon us in an effectual way and give us life, and then we get give us faith and repentance, or we cannot be saved. This gets into the order of salvation. I think it, that it's the preaching of God's Word, then the Spirit makes it effectual by giving the person life, and then faith and repentance. But here's what I would do. I would challenge you, because we're almost out of time. I would just challenge you to look from, look everywhere in the New Testament and just try to group together, this will be a part of your topical study anyway, group all verses that seems to speak of the Holy Spirit's work and salvation. Start in Matthew and go to Revelation. Verses that clearly seem to focus on the Spirit's work in salvation. And we can't go be, we can't say, we can't go beyond what the scriptures say. We can't add to it. We can't try to make it clearer, but at least find that. I believe the work of the Spirit in salvation is still an act of work, and it, without it, we're in trouble. Because no one can believe without the work of the Spirit. No one can become saved without the work of the Spirit because you're dead. You need Spirit. You need, you need the Spirit of God that gives you spiritual life. 
Your spiritual life is because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's what grants you spiritual life. It gives you that life. So the Spirit has to, it's the preaching of the Word and the Spirit of the Word that brings us to salvation. Now, I am not, look, that is true. The Word and the Spirit are required for salvation. That is true whether John 3, that water there should be interpreted as the word or not. Even if we just say you have to be born physically and then you have to be born in the spirit, the word of God is still absolutely necessary for salvation. Absolutely. You, you, how can, I mean, they, they got to they have the word of God preached. They've got to hear the word of God taught. They've got to hear the, they got to read the word of God. They got to be confronted with the word of God. I'm going to stop there. Now, I challenge you to read everything the curriculum has to say. I skipped around a little bit. They acknowledge themselves that it's really hard to measure or explain. They acknowledge that. You can tell me what you think. You can tell me what you think. I'm going to make sure no one's posted anything else in the comments. Uh, someone said that's a weird statement to me, spiritual DNA. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I'm not a big fan of that. I know what they're saying. That um, because the spirit is in us and the spirit is God, then in a sense, since the spirit is in me, well, then uh, it should start revealing its the, the character of God should start becoming manifest manifest in my life in some way, shape or form. I'm not a big fan of that. Um, you know, or when you're when you're born, your DNA, your genetics, you're going to take on physical characteristics and uh, physical looks based off that. And so what they're saying, when I become saved, now I'm indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and now that's going to produce some spiritual characteristics, which are the fruit of the Spirit. But then again, you got to be careful how you say that, because then people say, so then you're not saved unless you do this, this, and this. And well, we know how we get right back into all of the all the problems there. There we go. I'm going to stop. I know, I know we didn't, we just kind of got close to the subject. We just didn't, we didn't really take it apart, but that's, that's all I wanted to do tonight. I just wanted to say, hey, here, here it is. So your, your job is simple. Find every passage from Matthew to Revelation dealing with the Holy Spirit in regards to salvation. Obviously, John 3 is a big one. John 3 is a big one. And if you've got a, if you've got a argument for water, being whatever, okay, all I would say to all the people who are going to email me going, nope, baptism is required for salvation, then don't make exceptions, all right? Don't make exceptions because Jesus says, except someone is born of water and the Spirit, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus does not offer any exception there. So you don't come and impose an exception simply because it makes you uncomfortable, Right, I think that is important. All right, I, I feel like I feel like we just I feel like we really didn't accomplish much, but I wanted to at least get us thinking about this. The Spirit's work in the new birth. The Spirit's work in the new birth. All right, you can email me newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. We'll we'll keep working on this this week, and then. Uh, Hopefully Sunday night. Hopefully Sunday night, we can uh, we can get back to the the seminary approach to this. But hopefully, this practical approach will will this kind of discussion will be beneficial as well. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great night. 
and uh, well, God bless.